welcome okay. to the show, man. I've really been <laughs> exploring Injective yeah, yeah, yeah. ever since we got in touch for you guys to do this recording. And I got to say, like, some very interesting concepts there. Um, would you like to just quickly explain Injective yeah. to everyone that doesn't know the project already? And then we'll take it from there. Oh, okay, great. Yeah. So, so Injective is a layer one proof of stake public blockchain powering the best possible environment for DeFi developers with the most capital efficient decentralized exchange infrastructure for digital assets and derivatives. Uh, the protocol features zero gas fees, um, instant settlement, and native interoperability with both uh, Ethereum and Cosmos at the moment. Man, um, yeah, that's the first thing that stood out to me when I was researching Injective. And I think that's like the part that would intrigue a lot of people the most. And that's the fact of gasless trades. Um, some say there's not such a thing as a free lunch. So would you mind explaining gasless trades and how does this work? Indeed, there is no such thing as a free lunch. Um, obviously, if a transaction were to be free, it's going to be spanned by everyone in an infinite sense. And the way uh, the injective ecosystem enables this gas-free trade is actually creating a very interesting incentive mechanism where there's this um, kind of a cohort and set of actors called a relayers or an exchange application that can deploy, launch, and service a lot of users from a UI or UX or sometimes even API perspective uh, to allow people to submit trades, uh, to submit, uh, to view the latest, you know, uh, on-chain data or market data, and sometimes even support, you know, very unique order types. And these relayer or exchange applications can, as a matter of fact, all come together and um, pay for the user's uh, 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 gas cost and transaction fees in exchange for 40% of the trading fee. So from a user's perspective, they don't have to worry about you know, using a new chain, having to acquire the native uh, token for the chain, and they can just um, accomplish whatever goal that they're looking for on top of the injective ecosystem and uh, accrue value back to the ecosystem without uh, ever having to notice it. And, and that's very interesting because like that's like the main um adoption problem of having like interactions with a new chain like um if you want to go and mint nfts on tezos you might as well get some well you have to get some tezos in order to do it if you want to do anything in cardano the same thing well in metamask aside from the transaction fees being outrageous you also have to have ETH on your wallet which is a bit annoying so i think that solves a very present problem for crypto people uh, another thing that interests me is like you're shifting the model a little bit you're going for percentage fees rather than well yeah gas so what motivates this uh, how did you how did you land up at this uh, decision yeah, I, I think that that's kind of the standard for decentralized exchanges and centralized exchanges alike. Um, Uniswap charges around you know 03 percent of the fees for swapping, um, Binance and so forth. I think charges uh, from five up to you know uh, uh, twenty bips uh, per trade. So I think it's just about the overall ecosystem going with the same norm. Um, it is true that in the traditional equity and exchange market and also for uh, futures market, um, it does get uh, uh, charged at like a per trade uh, um, cost. But crypto, uh, most of crypto firms are currently going by the notional percentage. And well, this, um, yeah, I mean, that, that makes a lot of sense. It's, it must be like a bit annoying having to like <laughs> compete in a space where you're different enough to be considered or at least they would put injective in a different category than what the players that you often see like in the DEX uh, world. But how, how would you explain the differences to someone that doesn't know what injective is? Yeah, uh, I think one of the most interesting uh, component is that DeFi has this really beautiful thing where applications can be built on top of the same infrastructure, liquidity can be shared, um, you know, different types of assets and derivatives and financial products can be composed and uh, combined together in a certain way into another protocol. And this concept of composability is probably what makes DeFi the most powerful and most um, promising financial infrastructure for the future because there's literally no barrier um, and everyone is for the kind of, kind of like 
um, more outward serving rather than self-serving, uh, unlike a lot of you know like the le- legacy centralized infrastructures. So in Objective's case, it's really trying to marry the best of both worlds. So generally, due to you know EVM uh, considerations, um, exchange uh, experience would have to be you know AMM. It's really expensive in terms of execution, and um, you only get to swap. You don't get to post orders, and the liquidity is pretty static. You know people who provide these liquidity often have to face. Um, um, uh, impermanent loss, uh, even for Uniswap V3, um, it basically kind of crowds out a lot of people who are trying to uh, uh, even out the game and making it even more centralized towards you know the uh, the wealthy few. And for Injective's case, it's really about bringing that advantage and that experience from a central limit order book, which is definitely the most dynamic and the most flexible means of exchange and displaying liquidity uh, into a decentralized and optimized context while enabling uh, composability and all those magic around decentralized finance to happen. So that's why it's really important for Injective to you know, grow over time and to enable developer uh, adoption is that it basically expands you know, everything that's possible on DeFi and more. I mean, there are a couple of ways we can take this, but I think very much, um, yeah, the order book model is not as uh, taking advantage of in DeFi as it could be. I really, I really think that there's a lot of focus on AMMs right now, um, and they have like their own set of complications and their own set of benefits, but. When it comes to, at least to my own experience, researching projects and looking into things, I always like to kind of like, I prefer to see something different than to see a better version of the same thing. Just because I think there are so many things you can explore in in crypto and in blockchain in general. I I also noticed this was not going to be like my topic list for today, but, but I noticed this uh, when I was looking at into your Twitter today again in preparation for this. Uh, we had to push this back this interview a couple times. Uh, I, I'm seeing that you guys actually achieved something quite unique. You have the highest token burn ratio in the industry. I mean that's a feature and that's a difference if there ever was one. What's the story behind all that? Yeah, um, I, I think this really goes back to what the community decided upon Genesis is that um, obviously in order to prevent any type of manipulative tactic um, done on a lot of these exchanges, um, there has to be some form of uh, fee that exists within a protocol. Um, and it's also uh, kind of like a um, way to sound true that this is indeed you know useful liquidity, this is indeed you know uh, actionable volume essentially. But where does the fee go to, essentially? Um, there are many discussions around it. People propose different things. And the best way to do it, at least at the current moment, um, is to just burn it. It's uh, distributing the 40% to the you know, um, the, the relayer or the application that sourced this uh, 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 volume. And the rest of the 60% will be just going to an auction pool that goes through a, you know, on-chain auction every week. And um, the proceeds will be completely burnt. Uh, obviously, the auction itself converts, you know, all those stables or all those uh, quote assets into the native token of the chain, which is INJ. And what's it like, because I heard this very interesting take the other day, like when people are burning tokens or well, projects are burning tokens, what you're effectively doing is something obviously very positive for, for holders, which is like you're decreasing the the supply and the demand theoretically should stay the same. So therefore you have a big chance of your tokens price increasing. But in the end, it can also increase the centralization and reduce the chances of utility or or basically like, to, to phrase it in another way, it rather incentivizes the people to hold rather than use. So how do you how do you tackle this, this problem? Yeah, I, I would say that generally, um, price wouldn't be necessarily the uh, important factor or even a factor of consideration when it comes to, I guess, token economic in a sense. Uh, 
when the burn decision was made uh, by the community. I think the more interesting aspect here is that um, not only there uh, there's a deflationary force within the economic, there's actually also an inflationary force uh, that comes from obviously being a blockchain, um, you know, the block rewards uh, provided by proof of stake and also the stakers. So ideally over time, this becomes kind of a balancing force because um, the block reward natively is actually based on the stake to uh, float ratio. So, you know, the amount of token staked versus the amount of token in circulation. And obviously there's a perfect uh, ratio that uh, the overall on-chain mechanism tries to target. And if it ever goes below that, um, like for example, there's too many tokens that are floating um, then the inflationary reward will go up. And if there are yeah, not enough, there, there are too many tokens that are being staked, obviously the inflationary reward will uh, go down. And this creates a very interesting balancing force because uh, in the event of every single burn, that means the circulating um, token are going down and there are way too many tokens um, that are being staked uh, as a ratio perspective. So then more... Uh, uh, from an economic standpoint, more people will probably unstake their token and make it uh, find you know better uh, rates elsewhere uh, for the native token itself. So these two forces kind of play with each other and balance each other out. And overall, obviously, ideally, it's uh, uh, it's a very much of a stable mechanism, and um, it'll drive the overall adoption of the protocol without, you know, overly centralizing it because people can still stake it. People can still aggregate the value. And well, speaking of adoption, you've repeatedly, I mean, in your materials and in your previous, um, interviews, you've stated your goal is to become a, to enter the top five in volume. Um, it, it must be hard to do that. I mean, obviously, b b being in the top of anything is quite hard. But um, in general, even, for example, Binance's <laughs> servers tend to slow down at peak times. And there are a lot of considerations. So what do you guys see as like the most important uh, milestones in the way of getting there, in the way of getting to the top five? Yeah, I would say that currently the most important factor is uh, enabling what's commonly um, uh, disregarded as impossible within the CFI world, because at the end of the day, most of the volume is still um, concentrated around uh, centralized finance. I think for the decentralized finance space, um, uh, it's it's more of a bigger pie issue rather than you know trying to take away user base, uh, so it wouldn't be you know overly competitive amongst the decentralized avenues. But in the context of centralized avenue, um, Injective has this native advantage that different applications and different types of uh, user level um, flows and different types of you know financial uh, protocols can be built on top of it and create you know natural value aggregation and. Uh, natural flow of uh, um, uh, value through the exchange mechanism on top of the injective chain. And with those kind of plethora of, uh, of applications over time, maybe 100, maybe 200, and who knows, from, uh, in the future, there could be um, 10 uh, applications that everybody uses every day. Um, that's how the injective ecosystem as a chain and as a whole um, grows to be um, the top, I guess, you know, a top five volume in a sense. Um, it's it's really about creating a net positive value. Then you know, um, figure out like creative ways to promote uh, you know different marketing stunts and so forth, or regulatory arbitrage. Um, it's really about uh, enabling a lot more possibility that you know uh, presents a. Um, uh, strong utility for people to move over their liquidity and volume over to a decentralized ecosystem. I'm trying to think here what would be like the 10 dApps that I would use every day. Um, well, th there's definitely room for messaging, right? I, I don't think messaging is something that has been done correctly or in a good enough way on the blockchain. I, I don't know. What, what are you looking forward to to having as a dApp? By the way, it's There's definitely a lot. Dapp is not the um, app. Who says the app? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, I go with Dapp as well. Um, there's a, there's certainly a lot of application, and honestly, if you think about it, for um, DeFi applications, a lot of them at the end of the day still ties back to an AMM protocol on Ethereum um, or on Solana, ties back to Serum in some form or fashion. 
um, and with the injectives uh, order book um, structure, that means that you know the auction mechanism, the clearing mechanism, the liquidation mechanism can all go back and rest their value within an order book layer. So you can think of you know lending protocols um, and also um, uh, different financial applications um, such as you know money markets, um, financialization of NFTs, for example. Um, or you know different de derivative protocols that can be built on top of injective alongside the native derivative module, and one of the applications that I'm really really excited about actually um, is this on-chain market making uh, contract that's Rust based uh, within the Cosmosm layer, and the reason why it's so exciting is that uh, a lot of these uh, proprietary trading firms like um, some of the biggest like Jump Tower. DRW, um, they have a lot of uh, technology and IP that no one else has access to. And it's almost like a secret sauce um, that they use to market make and generate, you know, massive amount of volume along with um, the really, really stable and low drawdown return from it. And that's what caused them to be so successful to this day. Um, and in order for some average day folk to access it, they would either have to uh, hypothetically, you know, put their money into a hedge fund, which has its inherent barriers. Um, but more importantly, most of these proprietary trading firms don't even take subscriptions. So most people don't even have access um, to these type of, um, um, I would say, uh, returns. And what's exciting here is that um, this type of model and this type of market making on top of a central limit order book is being exposed on-chain uh, in the permissionless fashion for everyone to, to, to have access to. So it's not just you know uh, providing liquidity into an automated market-making protocol, but it's actually um, depositing into a robust model that's based on you know, Stoikov and not facing any uh, impermanent loss and actually being able to provide very efficient liquidity that has you know, very, very low risk compared to you know, a lot of other investments. Impermanent loss, I would say, like it's the main <laughs> scarecrow in the system right now, right? Like in the end, it's sort of like, like keeps these tools um, away from the everyday user or from like your average Joe, because uh, yeah, you, you don't want to deal with that. And the minute you confront something that has like the risk of impermanent loss. You are most likely not to get scared at some point and run away because <laughs> it's just hard to like compute all that. And most people don't really have the time to yeah, to actively manage their liquidity pools. So would would you say that in the current ecosystem there's a big need to solve this problem and to give people more solutions that go away from impermanent loss or is it just like something that we're gonna have to get used to as like a, as a whole yeah um obviously this isn't something that's um that people have to live with per se it's kind of a symptom or kind of a side effect coming from you know, a automated market making protocol that has this, um, in all fairness, a very beautiful representation of liquidity um, in a very, very succinct manner. Um, at the end of the day, it's literally just three variables on a function creating this liquidity pool where people can arbitrage with it and people can get an instant swap with a reasonable amount of slippage that LPs can get, uh, uh, get compensated for. So IO is kind of this uh, this trade-off um, for a very succinct automated market making protocol um, that's kind of baked into you know like a fully decentralized um, automated market making uh, decentralized exchange protocol. Obviously, there are solutions out there that people have you know um, experimented with, but they all kind of rely on a certain level of centralization and certain level of customization. And for Uniswap v3, um, which is uh, kind of their attempt at uh, resolving uh, impermanent loss is essentially uh, creating a hybrid between uh, an AMM and also uh, an order book model where there's a range for the liquidity that people can LP into, um, but uh, it provides a lot more dynamic liquidity. Um, if being hedged properly and being managed properly, there's no impermanent loss. But I think the most important thing here is that managing this active uh, uh, you know, Uniswap V3 liquidity position 
is actually very gas intensive and it's completely not worth it mm-hmm. if you're just a person with you know less than maybe a million dollars. So at the end of the day, it's really, really about um, you know creating this liquidity protocol or this market making strategy that's accessible to everyone that really decentralizes uh, market making for both uh, you know the largest institution in the world and uh, um, individuals. When you said decentralized um, a couple of times just there, and I'm just going to take this whole thing to like a, another extreme, but like, oh, we can always come back. I, I got thinking about like the famous Uniswap delistings, um, the famous, yeah, this whole case where like they faced regulatory pressure for anyone that doesn't know about, and they had to delist some assets that were synthetics, that were classified as risky and well you guys are spearheading or like one of your one of your big motos is truly decentralized so how how do you feel about this case and do you think you can um, survive the same kind of pressure if if it comes to it yeah um i think that's generally fine because uh, for Uniswap's delisting case, it's just taking it off of their front end, um, and people, if they want to uh, allow for access, it's still permissionless on a protocol level, and that's really what's important. Because uh, even for the injective chain itself, there's multiple exchange applications that have this local jurisdiction that have you know um, restrictions on what they can service or type of people they can service. But what really matters is that. Um, the protocol can't be censoring people. The chain can't be blocking people from uh, accessing things. Uh, while the application layer, um, it's understandable. Like, let's say if I want to enable a fiat gateway um, or an on-ramp or some type of advanced feature, um, there's always going to be you know, financial regulations done on the local level for people to adhere to. And I think there's nothing people can do about that on the application layer. But you know, f- to be a protocol, to be fully decentralized means that there has to be a way for them to access. There has to be, you know, ways for them to communicate within this peer-to-peer protocol because otherwise that's not a blockchain anymore. I mean, can you elaborate on that last point? Why is it not a blockchain anymore? Uh, because it censors people. <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, and I would get like, <clears throat> I would get Uniswap's point. Like, of course, if the, your project is uh, led by a CEO that has a public presence, if your if you have a company, if you have I don't know if they have offices, but if you have offices, I mean, if everything is incorporated, it, it just makes sense that you would have to uh, at some point meet the real world at a halfway through, right? Uh, which doesn't mean like Uniswap's. Um, primitives and what Uniswap uses as a, as a base layer cannot be used to trade these exact same assets that people are blacklisting just through a different UI. And to me, that's what what makes sense and what a lot of the discussion around surrounding this thing didn't really, didn't really focus on, although you can see by how quickly it escalated down, uh, downscale. You you can really see how in the end it wasn't that big of a deal in people's minds. I think like as well like you said solving it at a more base layer problem. I mean at a most base layer base layer level, it's better. And when it comes to your own scalability, what other things do you think about, uh, or what other things do you think should be there? at the most basic layer in order to to continue growing and providing that security, that scalability, everything in, in that line. Yeah, um, there's actually quite a few very interesting primitive that uh, Injective enable and sometimes inherits from uh, Cosmos SDK as well. And for, in terms of a scale, uh, scalability, first of all, um, since it's a application focus or application specific blockchain with this native exchange and derivatives module, it does things you know 10x, if not 1,000x faster uh, from a processing level um, uh, than you know like a VM based blockchain. And the reason for that is quite simple: is that it it's being done you know 
uh, very native to the consensus layer rather than uh, through a smart contract and going through a lot of uh, um, kind of redundant processes uh, in a sense. And that's kind of what Cosmos is really focusing on is that these blockchains have a, a very optimized application um, that's you know kind of built to be focused on this subset of application. Um, but obviously, if there were to be, um, you know, a million users, two million or, you know, 100 million users, uh, it's still going to eventually face like a bottleneck at, at a certain point. And that's when another primitive uh, of Cosmos really stands out, which is uh, IBC and one their upcoming model, which is a shared security model, because Basically, it allows to uh, for injective to have a chow chain or subchain um, that can be an isolated, independent consensus. Uh, maybe it's not necessarily an independent consensus because it's shared by a same set of validator, but it can have its own block production and so forth, and yet very natively and uh, seamlessly synced um, with the chain itself in terms of user experience uh, and also some of the important state information. Um, so you can understand it as, let's say, um, there's more than a hundred thousand market on injective, and you know the main chain might not be able to handle all that load in the world. Uh, what could happen is that there could be a chow chain, you know, still supported and secured by the same set of validator that's um, basically, you know, uh, managing a subset of market, let's say a thousand, ten thousand, uh, or fifty thousand. And those markets will go through and will have its own order book, its own data availability. Applications can still access it, you know, communicate with the main chain through IBC. Um, and the most important information, which is the final balance or the positions, will still, you know, be fed back to the injective chain. Um, but for, from a user perspective, it doesn't feel like anything has really changed. And I think that's really what's uh, amazing about IBC is that. Um, Every single product build, uh, building using Cosmos uh, is trying to really hard to abstract away this uh, bridging process amongst you know those projects that enable IBC. And another really interesting aspect is that um, using the same type of property, um, there's also work around enabling you know Ethereum virtual machine on top of Injective, um, along with you know the, a permissionless um, uh, Cosmosm there that. Uh, kind of expands the possibility for more and more smart contracts to be built on top of Injective. Uh, because currently, you know, given that it's so application focused, that the Cosmosm layer still requires a certain level of governance gating to be able to deploy contracts. But once there's a child chain um, that can have a more relaxed block time, that can process more things, uh, uh, is, is deployed essentially, um, then it means that a lot more things are possible uh, from an application layer and from a developer standpoint. Right. I, I mean, th that's what people like about Cosmos, right? The flexibility. Yeah, I, I would say it's not just a flexibility because technically you can build anything on top of most of those VMs. It wouldn't be Turing uh, complete if it's not. Um, right. Uh, in, in kind of like a broad sense, but, you know, um, building it in a practical manner, in a scalable manner, in a cost efficient manner, um, that really requires a consensus level uh, tuning and customization around it, which is what Cosmos SDK uh, is focused around. And Injective kind of inherits that property along with an Ethereum native experience where users can use their MetaMask don't have to switch wallet, uh, can just sign for like transactions and trades. Um, so basically the flexibility is immense uh, when you know using this uh, stack. I, I don't I don't like to bring out like <laughs> competitors right away or like possible yeah you know how in, in like this field <clears throat> when we talk about competition it's quite a broad word, right? Because Ideally, everyone wants to think as of themselves as building something on top of existing things and having a positive feedback loop amongst everyone rather than competition. But it's, of course, very obvious that sometimes there are comparisons around, all around. And one big one that I've seen a lot while researching more about Injective Labs is ThorChain. Would you like to, to address, because I, I think it's very interesting that people draw this comparison, because there's some point where it overlaps and some where it absolutely doesn't. 
Yeah, I would say torching, uh, and obviously uh, torching is actually uh, a partner with uh, uh, you know Injective Labs. We're working on actually a few ways to work together, uh, which is actually pretty interesting now that you brought it up. But I think uh, Thorchain is fundamentally really addressing a different problem than what the Injective community is trying to address. Uh, Thorchain excels at you know connecting to many many chains. Um, bridging over their asset and create this kind of like a cross-chain uh, AMM liquidity hub. And the way it works is that, you know, uh, hypothetically speaking, I have Bitcoin and I want to swap it over to Ethereum. Um, Thorchain would be kind of the premier destination for it for a quick swap. And what Injective really um, excels at is, first of all, it has a derivative layer. It enables um, this uh, 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 futures perpetual and later on option and really, that's uh, in the injective ecosystem bread and butter is adding a lot of you know the advanced financial tools uh, comparing to, uh, to a typical you know AMM exchange. Um, another really key aspect is that injective is uh, order book based, and so that means that you know uh, it creates a lot more advanced tooling, a, a lot more advanced financialization, uh, you know, for power users who have, you know, who's trying to swap 10 million worth of uh, Atom to, you know, uh, USDT or trying to hedge their 10 million uh, uh, position in Atom, uh, Injective would be the premier destination to do it essentially because um, uh, it allows them to get better slippage. It allows them to uh, kind of TWAP the execution or access to derivatives and futures to hedge their position. Hmm. Okay. And well, you dropped the <laughs> you, you dropped the news, or I don't know if this has been publicly announced. But like, which ways are you? Which other ways are you like seeing of collaborating together? Yeah, uh, obviously, I would say the first thing is uh, bridging. Um, it, it's actually right. like a pretty long um, uh, partnership. I think uh, we initially had a lot of conversation around a year ago around the bridging discussion, and there's been a lot of work around, uh, you know, especially on the Thorchain side for enabling IBC to access the greater Cosmos ecosystem as well. And that's uh, still an active work to this day to you know make it happen. I, I think. Um... I mean, there are names that are under-recognized or under-hyped in the blockchain scene, and Torchin is like one step above all of them because they're doing something that everyone claimed was super necessary for the industry, and once they fully solved it, no one, basically, no one cared, which I figured is a is a pretty unique case. Um, because I remember a lot of conversations about like these kind of swaps or about these kind of uh, models back in the day, and nowadays no one seems to care. Well, why would you think that is? Um, I, I would say it partially has to do with um, the proliferation of uh, bridging protocols um, that kind of uh, offset a lot of the value prop that Thorchain brought forward back in the day. And I, I still think that Thorchain is a much more native experience for bridging things over because, again, um, you get to swap the asset instead of, you know, bridging over a tokenized representation of the asset. And another exactly. pretty key thing is that um, Thorchain as its own chain might have a little bit of trouble to be integrated with a lot of different, you know, DeFi protocols on a destination or a source chain. And it's definitely, you know, like a lot of work and a lot of coordinated effort amongst community members uh, to make it happen. And um, this is why, you know, composability is, is absolutely important and critical because um, generally, you know, a DeFi protocol can't really send messages or arbitrary instructions um, across chains into a destination chain. Um, and, you know, those have tried, uh, uh, quite a few of them actually got hacked as a result. And so it's, it's, uh, it's first of all, you know, a very important value capture and value flow because, Integration within a DeFi layer um, is is going to be, you know, the most important growth factor. Also, when you mention hacks, there's like, um, I, and I must <laughs> at some point stop using this as a talking point, but in general, it's something that I'm very interested on. Um, 
you know like the crypto industry has these jesus like figures where everything they say turns into like the conversation point until they go and say something more interesting and vitalik put out this article about bridges and he's been like hammering on it uh, which has stressed a lot of people in the cross-chain community quite badly because nowadays everything surrounding bridges is under scrutiny Yeah. What do you think about this? Aside from like the obvious answer, well, yeah, bridges are hackable. We need to work on making them more secure. But yeah, how do you feel about this whole cross-chain debate? Um, I would say this is really more of a process. Um, basically, you know, like a lot of people and definitely the space as a whole is still pretty new to um, managing, operating and designing and developing different types of bridges. Some of them could be a little bit more on the centralized end, which is POA, and some of them could be on the more decentralized end, uh, which is kind of what Injective is doing with the uh, uh, Ethereum layer. And also the overall, like um, most of the IBC uh, protocols out there. And it, at the end of the day, it's uh, uh, so, so Vitalik mainly brought on kind of like the economic and security assumptions uh, behind bridges. Um, I think what's important for the space is to make sure that the bridging layer over time is ironclad in terms of security. And this way, this is the only way to kind of uh, make it like a fundamental assumption uh, for the general crypto users in order to kind of usher into this multi-chain world. Um, Yeah, I think I think that would be the most important part. Is it's a, you know, there's no easy answer to it. Um, no one's going to come up with a magic bullet that solves overnight on the whole like bridge security issue. It's really about an iterative process, just like contract security back in the day, um, uh, to come up with the best practice, best solution, and people slowly, you know, strengthening the assumption around uh, uh, bridges. Man, yeah, and it's such a necessary thing uh, because you, it would really be a shame to have like this multi-chain world not interconnected. I mean, I, I'm a big supporter, as I said before, of like people doing different things. Why, which is why I tend to frown upon like when people are trying to build like the next ETH killer or the next high throughput chain. Uh, What you really want is see people doing things in a different way. And of course, the more different it is, the more you need to find ways to interconnect that kind of thing. Whereas without bridges, that just like silos value in a lot of different places and probably limits how we can grow as an industry. And less than as an industry, I would say as a movement, um, When it comes to all of that, how do you, yeah, what strategies do you see in place for your own growth? And I'm making this uh, this question big in purpose because I just like to, yeah, to, to give you the floor to think about like how, yeah, how how to attract more users and more value, liquidity, etc. Yeah, I mean, like for for Injective's lab side, um, we operate a relayer called uh, Injective Pro, which is basically just kind of like a, at this point a reference implementation for a lot of other exchange applications um, because we contribute to the uh, uh, the core blockchain. So uh, we're probably the fastest to come up with some sort of like application layer presentation to the user. And from that point on, you know, uh, other projects uh, building on top of Injective can take it from there and, you know, develop their own kind of uh, twist to it or to their specific application to it. And for the Injective Pro, uh, Pro growth side, um, you know, it's it's really, uh, I would say, standard at the moment. It's about, you know, growing the user base from uh, partnering with different uh, um, uh, influencers and uh, celebrities and, you know, creating this referral system Um, and yeah, like more about, you know, making sure that people find it and uh, making sure more, more and more people, uh, gain access to it and get exposed to it. The more interesting part would be, you know, how does the protocol or the ecosystem grow as a whole? And I think there's actually really, really, um, good methodology, uh, to think about it is that, um, 
it, it shouldn't be about uh, a coordinated effort where some guy at the top just points at a certain direction and everyone will have to move along with it uh, in the community. I think it's about you know setting up the incentive breadcrumbs, um, setting up the um, incentive design and also the economic considerations, and having people to um, aggregate their mindshare and their effort around it. So, for example, uh, right now, you know, like on top of the injector chain, there's uh, kind of, I think, 10 active uh, relayers and applications off finding their own moat, um, finding their own, you know, value uh, uh, within the space. And really, it's because of that 40% uh, fee split, you know, they have the incentive that if they can grab the user, they'll find, uh, um, they'll find you know, a very robust decentralized exchange infrastructure that they don't have to worry about building. And yet they get to capture 40% of the value uh, from the protocol. So that's a really strong kind of native incentive that, hey, if I create a good enough experience, if I create a nice way to onboard users, um, then, you know, like I capture a lot more value for a lot lower uh, R&D costs, basically. Um, and uh, as a matter of fact, there's a lot more uh, unique and interesting twist to it as well. Some, I think there's a project uh, called Frontrunner that's trying to build a sports betting um, uh, platform on top of Injective, utilizing the order book infrastructure, where you know, like they'll have access to you know a completely new market segment that you know most of the community members didn't even think of, and uh, utilize this infrastructure that actually, in hindsight, was perfect uh, for. And yeah, it's really about, you know, like setting up the ecosystem, setting up the incentives and, you know, attracting really smart community members to build on top of it, uh, to grow into their own kind of like a, um, you know, either a business or a protocol or a project. Um, yeah. And there's obviously a lot of, you know, uh, incentives that can be devised when uh, more and more developers come on to build, you know, native financial protocols uh, or, you know, like a, um uh, projects on top of uh, the injective ecosystem and not necessarily just on you know the application layer i really like that example um because i can see from a, my not too deep understanding of injective how that kind of um of project like what you said about sports betting that would fit very well on the model of, of Injective. What else, uh, what other projects are you just noticing or are popping in the radar of the ecosystem that you think are well-fitted to do something that they couldn't have done outside of Injective? Yeah, I would say another really great example is uh, Picasso Exchange. So they're more focused on, you know, uh, bringing in the general user, really, you know, optimizing the user experience um, around some of the most uh, intuitive or one of the most native kind of exchange need. So they turned, you know, this order book infrastructure around and turned it back into a swap interface, except with far superior slippage and cost. Um, and on top of that, you know, like they've been, one of the most power uh, developers around, you know, exploring new ins, uh, mechanisms and exploring new features. Uh, a good example is that, technically speaking, stop loss um, isn't really possible on chain because your order gets exposed, and thereby, you know, as an on chain primitive, it might be manipulated. But that doesn't mean that um, you can't uh, leverage other aspects of the chain or other features, and you know, relayers. Uh, um, can currently, you know, like a lot of relayers are also working on this, is that they can utilize, you know, off Z, which is kind of an approval um, um, uh, equivalent uh, on top of injective, um, use a grant off Z message to execute a certain transaction type and, you know, trust a relayer to execute this message. And also, most importantly, maintaining the privacy of this order um, until, you know, the trigger condition. So, Really, it's about you know like exploring the protocol, finding really interesting and actually creative um, ways to enable really cool features, um, and yeah, like uh, uh, convince the users to bring on due to these uh, uh, really strong features. Yeah, I, don't, I mean that's quite cool. I never thought about like not being able to have like stop losses purely on chain. Uh, that in and out of itself is a great use case. Uh, and it's little innovations like that in the end of the day, right? Um, I remember like when I first learned about Torsion, like it seemed like they were hyping up something like really 
and I'm just going back to like the example that was already in my mind. <laughs> this is not meant to be like a conversation around torching. Okay. Uh, but like, <laughs> it, it really seems to be like an underwhelming use case. But then you think about everything that you can do with it. And yeah, it makes sense. And the same goes for injective. Like you don't notice how far the, the order book model goes until you think about a bunch of ramifications. Um, Man, are, are, as we start nearing the hour and the time to wrap up this podcast, I'm just curious if there was anything that you wanted to discuss on here or that you like to, or that your community is particularly excited or talking about right now that you'd like to address on this, on this conversation. Yeah, I think like, um, uh, obviously, I, I personally am not really like a marketer per se. And, um, uh, but what's really interesting is that, you know, w with this incentive uh, for applications, a lot of them are like coming up with like really cool like community activities. Like, for example, um, INJ Do uh, Dojo Exchange, which is also, you know, like really an exchange application on top of Injective. Um, it isn't necessarily, you know, like coming up with like really cool innovations or like really interesting ways of uh, um, uh, utilizing the core protocol. But rather, they're just going around and you know creating really interesting community activities, making it engaging and fun for them to use the exchange, creating competitions and so forth. And I think you know um, overall, it's not just about you know the technology itself; it's also about you know how people can make it an engaging and exciting experience for people. And so yeah, like we'll love to uh, have you know more people to check out you know all these like applications that are you know spending a lot of time and you know working really hard to make it happen on top of the injective ecosystem and. And on top of that, I would say, you know, currently um, there's been uh, uh, a couple of things in the work in terms of, you know, uh, community spend pool uh, structuring uh, where, you know, people can request funding from the protocol through the DAO structure um, and also um, uh, ecosystem fund that's uh, going to come out uh, for, you know, general investments. And uh, there's been a lot of, you know, strong backers behind that as well. And just would love to, uh, a lot of people to get aware of. Cool. Yeah, definitely go check that out, guys. Um, and beware of anyone that tells you they're not a good marketer <laughs> because they probably are. <laughs> well, I mean, it's not my job per se. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, well, well you're, you're doing a good job holding up, holding up here. Um, man, in general, uh, I would say that we covered most of the aspects uh, I, I wanted to cover. I, I don't have a good segue into this, so I'm just going <laughs> to jump right into it. Um, front running, um, your, yeah, your, your platform, let's call it that, uh, runs a lot on like trying to solve front running. And in my mind, until I started looking deeper into this um, not too not too long ago, that was a bit of a, pro, a whale problem. Like I was very surprised to find out that that's a problem that affects little users like me. So would you like to just help people clear out that misconception that front running is only a problem for whales? Yeah, that's actually a really good point because that's kind of like a, um, I would say like a nascent feature of Injective that actually kind of uh, uh, inspired the birth of Injective back in 2018, because back then I was doing a lot of cartography research uh, at the university lab. And one of them was, you know, uh, coming up with a, you know, crypto primitive called a verifiable delay function. And Injective actually born out of uh, utilizing this to create this decentralized concept of time to resolve front running and collision issues. Um, so yeah, really great that you brought it up because that's kind of uh, um, how it all started. And now, you know, Injective obviously is rid of any type of front running issue because of the matching uh, process that utilizes a frequent batch auction. So the reason why front running um, is a lot bigger issue than what you would typically find within the traditional equity market uh, or, you know, the stock market um, is that on Ethereum, it's uh, a dark forest in a sense where everyone can see exactly what you're doing and uh, any type of your order and any type of your uh, trade is uh, immediately viewable by everyone. And that's really great for transparency, but that also becomes an issue when um you know, people that can find ways to exploit this, they can find ways to create a quick arbitrage um, to take advantage of. So that's why even for, uh, you know, in the traditional market, you know, front running only happens for very big people because there's value extract, the risk is worth it. Whereas in the Ethereum or more within the EVM context, front running is so easy to perform and accomplish that 
basically for anyone ma- making like a meaningful trade size, they can always make that you know couple of bips of uh, spread or profit. Um, and a lot of people, you know, like their uh, their required return is very much different. There could be people with you know a thousand or two thousand dollar worth of capital trying to you know earn you know like a couple dollars per day just by doing this. Whereas there could be you know really really big guys trying to um, uh, earn at least you know ten bips on you know a certain you know large size trade. Um, so it's both like a beauty of uh, you know decentralization and transparency because everyone gets to participate in this type of like minor extractable value in a sense or like front running. But it's also very uh, uh, it's also hurting the user a lot. And I mean, I think your solution is different enough to like warrant um, a different category rather than other solutions that are being pushed to avoid front running, sandwich attacks, MEV, whatever you may call it. Uh, because often these solutions are more in like the privacy, uh, zero knowledge space. Uh, how would you draw that, that distinction? Yeah, I, w- I would say that generally um, there are a couple of solutions. I think right now, um, obviously, I, I could be completely wrong here because I'm not, you know, like a full on. <laughs> uh, 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 I I don't really do. The, uh, I'm I'm not too up to date with uh, the MVV and you know like the gas auction stuff. But I think right now, the, you know, the most practical method is just to contact a miner and he'll you know shield your transaction until the very last second and just not gossip it. Um, I would say, you know, for like the current, you know, uh, uh, solutions through ZK Rollup and uh, through, I guess, some sort of privacy preserving transaction types, it's definitely very, very promising um, from an EVM context. Um, But that being said, do have to consider uh, consider the fact that from a research or from a theoretical perspective, uh, paper into a full-on production-ready uh, application. They're still lacking, uh, you know, many many steps. Uh, and uh, for example, you know, like Starkware and Starknet are very very impressive pieces of technology that's, you know, been in the development. Um, even just ZK Stark itself, uh, you know, ten or twenty years almost. And uh, Starkware and Starknet to this day um, still can't be, you know, f- like fully decentralized. As a result, is because the computation to generate the uh, Stark proof um, uh, would only be possible at the moment. Obviously, you know, it, it won't be the case pretty soon um, through, you know, like a centralized uh, node or an operator essentially. So, you know, like all those uh, theoretical solutions, it sure is how a lot easier to build an application-specific chain that rids of this problem completely. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, I, I, I'm going to say like I came to blockchain from like a marketing perspective. So I haven't yet conquered Starks, but like <laughs> I'm going for you. I'm going to understand you one of these days. Um, aside from <laughs> the super deep technical concepts, uh, is there anything that you that we didn't cover in this episode that you'd like to quickly go over? No, I think that's uh, pretty much it. You know, like uh, feel free to check out the overall ecosystem. Um, I, I think uh, Injective.com is a pretty nice place to start, and um, feel free to follow Twitter and everything. In your Twitter account is definitely a lot of fun, man. Like I, I like uh, I like the memes, basically. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't it InjectiveLabs.org? Uh, it's no, uh, injectivelabs.org is uh, kind of like the team, um, and injective.com is uh, you know kind of like this landing page for the overall ecosystem, kind of like you know Solana.com or something like that. Right, that's why injectives.org, <laughs> that's why injectivelabs.org seemed like a bit a bit empty. Okay, yeah. <laughs> good. Um, so yeah, I think we can wrap it up then. Um, make sure to check out um, more about injective. Uh, I mean, in general, like these podcasts are a good place to start, but you want to check out all the materials yourself. Uh, Everything that they've put out, it's aside from very thorough, very nice looking. (laughs) So I'm sure people are going to have a fun time doing that. Just as I had a fun time talking to Eric here, man. Thank you very much. Great. Yeah, really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. And well, thank you to everyone that's still watching. Uh, Please go check out Injective, follow the podcast, subscribe and all that. We'll see you on the next one. Bye-bye.